Good morning. Please stand for a reading of 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Christ Jesus. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So uh, the, the promise of joy, even just the promise of joy, has such a power to motivate us to do things that otherwise we, we wouldn't even think about doing, right? Joy, it, it just it has this power to grip us and drive us to do even, even crazy things. Like take, for instance, dogs. Uh, this is a little-known secret at Beacon. I don't really care much for pets. Uh, and, you know, I, I admit that at the risk of, like, alienating myself from you guys, which is, like, preaching 101, don't alienate the audience. But, but I'm just being honest. Dogs don't do much for me. Like, when I see a dog, all I see is, is a burden. Like, I see the work. I see, like, another mouth to feed and poop to clean up and, you know, vet bills that are sometimes really expensive and, like, that yuppie barking in the middle of the night and, like, having to get up. And I, I just see the inconvenience. I see the burden of a dog without anything really in exchange. And, and then, I, you know, I talk to people who are, uh, you know, dog lovers, which is pretty much everybody else in the world except me. Uh, and... And what's crazy to me is they don't disagree. They don't tell me like, oh, no, it's not that much work. They, they almost never say it's not that much work. What they say is it's worth it. They say that all of that work is worth it because of the joy that that dog brings into their life. And, and, and you know, I've had this conversation a lot uh, because everybody else likes dogs. And, and everybody comes back to, like, that same scenario, right? The, the, their quintessential picture of the joy of a dog is when you walk in the door at the end of the day, right? And that dog comes running up to you, and he's so excited to see you, and his tail is wagging. And it's like that unconditional love, that joy that it has in the day after day, you come home and it's like them seeing you for the first time and that excitement that they have in your presence, it brings you a kind of joy and it makes the burden of the dog worth it. 
because we are willing to do pretty much anything if we believe it's going to maximize our joy. In fact, there's a lot of people who say that joy is the reason we do anything. Blaise Pascal, he was a 17th century uh, philosopher and mathematician. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both. He goes on to say, uh, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Right? It's a pretty morbid picture, but he's saying that even, even people who take their own life, they do that because they think that is going to bring them more joy than continuing to live. That joy is driving these decisions. St. Augustine, you guys probably heard the name. I don't know if you know too much about him, but he was an early church father, lived at the, the turn of the 5th century. And, uh, and he, I, I like reading him because he's kind of like snarky and sarcastic uh, when he, he talks about things and he's really kind of playful and fun. But anyway, he, he noticed and he's kind of poking fun at the Roman pagans in his time because they have all of these gods. They have this like pantheon of gods and they have gods for like everything, everything you can imagine. But there's different tiers of gods. So there's like Jupiter, which is kind of like one of these prime gods. And there are these lesser gods and goddesses and like thousands of them, right? Thousands of them. But he notices at one point there is a goddess named Felicity like joy, that she is the goddess responsible for joy. She has the power to determine someone's joy and happiness, but she's like one of these lesser gods, and it confuses him. He's like, this doesn't, your religion doesn't even make sense, he says to him. This is what he says. He says, if the pagan books and rites are true, and Felicity is a goddess, why is it not established that she alone should be worshipped, right? He goes on, does anyone desire anything for any other reason than to secure happiness? Does anyone desire anything for any other reason than to secure happiness? He says, then why on earth was it so long before the pagans set up a shrine for this great goddess? Was it that he couldn't find her in all that crowd? All right, you get the sense of like sarcasm and snarkiness. It's like, oh, you have this big crowd. You just lost the most important god in your crowd. But, but you see what he's saying? He says, we don't do anything. We don't do anything except for this desire to secure our happiness, our joy. This is the driving motive. Like the joy is behind all the other things, right? And then we come to today's passage and we read something that it, it's easy to read past and not, not kind of pick up on. But if you catch it, it's something that is so bold and so outlandish that if it's true, it should keep us on the edge of our seats, right? Dips read 1 John 1 for us. And, and in there, in verse 4, it says, we write this, John is writing this, he says, we write this to make our joy complete, John is writing something, he's communicating a message, he's, he's doing this, he's delivering this, because he is convinced that it is going to make our joy complete. And when, he, when he says our joy, he's not just referring to like himself and his writers. Our here includes not only the, the writers of John, but the readers of John, which is us now, right? We just read it. So he's writing this not only to make his own joy complete, but our joy complete, fulfilled, like, not that he's, going, he's writing this to give us some joy or an increased experience of joy, but complete joy, lacking nothing, the superlative experience of joy. And we're in this series, uh, second week in this series called Superlative, where, where we come to understand that Jesus came to give us life and life to the full, the superlative experience of life. He didn't come to take away. He came to give and give and give. And as we look today at joy, we realize that Jesus didn't come 
to give us some joy or to increase our joy a little bit, but he came to give us the fullness of joy, complete joy, the superlative experience of joy. And John is writing this message with the expectation that if, if we take this seriously, that you and I can have the superlative experience of joy. You get that? This, like, complete joy, lacking nothing. You can't increase on the superlative. It's the best of the best. Now, I understand that for some here and some tuning in online that, you know, when you, you don't necessarily take the Bible at face value, that for you, you're still on this journey of trying to understand what you believe. And we totally respect that, want to honor that and, uh, you know, honor your journey, all of that. But I know for most of you, you believe that this isn't just John writing, that this is the Holy Spirit writing through John, that this is the inspired word of God. So this isn't just John's idea, but this is actually God himself saying, there's a message, there's something that, that, that can happen here that can bring you the superlative experience of joy. And as we look to this passage, we see John break this down, and, and it involves two things. It involves the right environment and the right message. The right environment and the right message. Let's start with the right environment. The right environment, it needs to be a social environment. In verse 3, he says this. He says, uh, we proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, right? Fellowship with us. So he's, he's writing this with the expectation that there's going to be fellowship. Now that word fellowship uh, in, in Greek, it's a word that some of you might have heard of. It's koinonia. And the word simply means kind of to share in something, to participate in something together. And John is saying that if we want the superlative experience of joy, we have to, we have to experience it in an environment that is, is social in nature, where there's other people that can share in that joy. Because shared joy is always better than joy by itself. And, and we don't need scripture to tell us this. Even experience tells us this, right? Is a, a picture of Bernie Sanders sitting someplace where he doesn't belong really that funny unless you get to share it with somebody else, right? The, like, what, it, it, it might be funny on its own, but it's that shared experience that multiplies it, right? Or, or why do we have Super Bowl parties? We have Super Bowl parties because you don't want to watch the Super Bowl on the couch by yourself, because it's not as fun watching the commercials if you can't laugh with somebody else, right? Uh, no, we, we watch it for the game. Because it's, it's more fun to watch the game with a group of people, to celebrate the wins with a group of people. And doing that in a party is so much better than doing it by yourself. But the superlative experience would be to go to the game, to be in that stadium, with a crowd of people sharing in your joy. Because there's nothing like being with a crowd of people sharing in the joy of watching Tom Brady lose right? There's it's just, it's, it's good by itself, but when you get to share that with a crowd of people, it becomes that much better. It needs to be a social environment. Secondly, it needs to be a spiritual environment. He goes on to say that our fellowship, it's not just with each other, he says. He says, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this fellowship, this sharing in, this participating in it together, it's not just with each other, but it's with the Father and with the Son. And as we read through Scripture, we know that any experience of fellowship with the Father and the Son is by the Holy Spirit. It's because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that we have any sense of the presence of the Father and the Son in our lives. This is a spiritual environment that we need to be in. Now, I want to pause for just a moment, because when you hear about a spiritual environment or spiritual experience, I don't know what comes to mind for you, but a lot of times when I talk to people, their ideas of what makes a, uh, an experience spiritual, uh, what the, the kind of construct of that comes more from Eastern religion than the Bible. 
Uh, and if it does come from the Bible, they kind of take a, a few isolated experiences and try to paint like that's what it needs to be. It needs to be these weird, crazy gifts going on. But actually, John tells us later in John how we discern the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. He says in chapter 4, he says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If you want to know if you're in a, a Holy Spirit-filled environment, you know because the Spirit testifies about Jesus. In fact, the Spirit is constantly, this is what we see all throughout the, the New Testament, is that when the Spirit shows up, people end up talking about Jesus, right? At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up, and the apostles, they don't get up and start actually talking about what the Holy Spirit is doing. They get up and they start talking about Jesus. They start proclaiming about Jesus. I would actually argue to say, all right, and I think Scripture backs me on this, that if you're in an environment and your attention and your thoughts are more about the Holy Spirit and what he's doing than about Jesus, chances are the Holy Spirit isn't driving that bus. Not because the Spirit is, like, lesser than Jesus. Not at all but because the Spirit is awesome. <laughs> the Spirit loves Jesus. The Holy Spirit loves nothing more than to lift Jesus up. And the telltale sign of having an experience of the Holy Spirit is you're thinking about Jesus and what he has done. If you want to learn anything about like humility, look to the Holy Spirit. Because he just loves, he loves to divert the attention away from himself and point to Jesus and the Father. So when we talk about a spiritual environment, we're talking about an environment where you come in and, and the Spirit is impressing upon our hearts the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's a, a social uh, environment, a spiritual environment, and lastly, an emotional environment. Because he says we write this to make our joy complete. Joy is an emotion. It is. I think sometimes as Christians we try to uh, hyper-spiritualize joy and try to distinguish it from happiness. And so we talk about joy being something more. And, and I do think joy is something more than happiness, but it's not less than happiness. Joy is still an emotion. Even as you read through scripture, joy, it, it, it actually has this emotional response. And emotions are tricky because you can't make yourself feel something which is super frustrating. Uh, you can kind of medicate yourself into feeling something occasionally, but that's short-lived and it's superficial. But you can't really just make yourself feel something. However, I do believe that we can do things to not feel things. That we actually have more control, not over what we feel, but we do have some semblance of control of, over not feeling things. And, and especially men, I, I think for us, we have to be cautious that we, we don't put up our arms and kind of keep... Uh, you know, our emotions at a distance, and, uh, you know, especially in a social environment, men, we've been conditioned to believe that expressing emotion in a social environment is a sign of weakness, you need to have control, but, but these things, this desire for control and this desire to kind of keep those emotions at bay, I actually think it, it depletes the emotional environment where joy is going to be experienced to the fullest, right? He says that it's a social, spiritual, and emotional environment. Now, I, I don't know if you know this, but this is exactly the kind of environment we're hoping to create right now. Like, when we gather on Sunday mornings, this is the environment that we're hoping for. It is a social environment. We're pulling you guys together. And even if you're not in the room, you're there. But we want you back in the room when you can come back. Because there's something about being in the room to together, the space together where we share in each other's joy. And we're praying that the Holy Spirit shows up and impresses the reality of Jesus, testifies to Jesus in the, the depths of our heart. And we, we hope and we pray that there will be an emotional response. That you will not just think differently, although we hope you think differently. We hope that it won't just be 
a practical experience where you're going to go off and do things differently, although we hope that's true too. We hope that you will feel differently about Jesus and who he is and what he's done on account of being here today. And next Sunday, the same thing. That you'll have not just a, a social and spiritual experience, but even an emotional experience. Why do you think we sing so much in church? Like, you ever think about it? I, I, uh, I was thinking about it, and I, I estimate that I've been to around 2,000 worship gatherings in my life. 2,000. Uh, and all kinds. Like, I've been to Pentecostal churches. I've been to high liturgical churches. I, I've been everything in between. I went to a, uh, a charismatic Catholic, predominantly black church in the south side of Chicago that was led by a, a charismatic white priest. All right? I've been to like all kinds of churches. I've been all over the U.S. in churches in the U.K. and Scandinavia and Africa. I've been to church services like in the mountains outside and in packed stadiums and in homeless shelters, all kinds of church services all over the world in different environments. And guess what? I don't think I've ever been to a single church service where there wasn't singing. I mean, I'm sure it's probably happened, but I can't think of a single time I've been to a church service where there wasn't singing. Why do you think that is? Because it's supposed to be an emotional experience. That, that music actually stirs the heart and the affections in a way that simply just talking and thinking doesn't. And so we sing because we actually want to, to kind of open ourselves up to having an emotional experience. Not simply an emotional experience. I, I know that if it's nothing but that, that that's empty, right? We're going to get there in a second. But it still should be at least an emotional experience. Right? This is the kind of environment we're trying to cultivate because according to John, this is the kind of environment where the superlative experience of joy is experienced. Right? And I, I do believe that if you have just this environment, a social, spiritual, and emotional environment with nothing else, you'll probably walk away with a little bit of joy. But according to John, you need more than this to have this superlative experience of joy. You need that environment, but you also need the right message. We need the right message. And he talks about a message. He's writing a letter. He's writing a message. And he says this about the message. This is the message. This is the message that we've heard from him and declared to you. It says, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. You notice the message? Where does it start? It starts with God. It starts with God is light. It actually starts with God's holiness. Later in, uh, in John's letter, he talks about God is love. Probably what everybody's favorite thing about God is, God is love. But in fact, John doesn't start with God is love. John starts with God is light. He starts with God's holiness because in order to even appreciate God's love, you have to start with his holiness. That he is light and in him is no darkness at all. And when we speak of God's holiness, we're speaking on, on the one sense about him being pure, perfectly pure. Right? That's that idea of, you know, there's no darkness in him at all. He's perfectly pure. But his holiness, it also speaks to him just being separate from us, being something categorically different than us. He, we don't belong in the same sphere, right? Because there's darkness in us. There is no darkness in him. He is categorically different. He is other. And John, he starts here because he knows how important it is for us to, to have an appreciation and understanding that God, he is high above us. Right? So he starts with this picture trying to press into us how, how superior God is to us. He, he is high, he's lofty, he's holy. Right? But he presses it even deeper because it's not enough to just kind of have this head knowledge that God is holy. He wants us to experience God's holiness, to kind of have a, an experiential felt knowledge of what it is for God to be holy. And in order to do that, we need to experience holiness. And so John presses it in and he says, if we claim 
If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. You see what he's saying? He says, if we claim to have fellowship with God, if we claim to even know him at all, but we're walking in darkness, then we don't know him. We're actually deceiving ourselves, right? In order to know God in any real substantial way, we actually have to walk in that holiness. We have to try to practice that holiness, to walk in his shoes, right? We, we even say this with somebody, you know, with human beings. If you want to know somebody, you have to walk a mile in their shoes, we say, right? Because to know God in his holiness, we have to have that experience of trying to walk in holiness. When I was in high school, I, uh, I dated a girl who was an all-American swimmer. Uh, she was an All-American in high school, went on college, she was an All-American as well, and, uh, you know, I would occasionally go and I'd go to swim meets and I'd watch her swim, and she was, you know, she would just win a lot, like all the time, and she would post these amazing times, but I'm not a swimmer, so I don't, like, the times didn't mean anything to me, uh, I just knew that they were better than other people's times, like, none of that really, it registered, like, I knew it, but it didn't really register experientially, and then one day, I got in the water, and I swam alongside of her. And I don't understand, like, I don't, maybe we're not, like, the same species, but, like, for me, I was constantly, like, fighting against the water. Like, the water was an adversary working against me. For her, it was, like, her best friend, and she was just, like, floating, gliding through the water. And it was something that, until that moment where we were actually in the same space, and I was trying to swim alongside her, did I realize, oh, my goodness, you're, you're categorically different than me when it comes to swimming. See, God, he, uh, he, he knows that, our, our understanding of his holiness, it, it's, it's so limited. It's just kind of this head knowledge until we actually try to walk in holiness, that we try to do what he does. See, it, it's when we actually try to love our spouse as Christ loved the church that we start to appreciate just how holy our God is. And he, he lifts up just a little bit higher. And then when we try to, to forgive people as Christ has forgiven us, and we try to do that, and we try, and maybe we have some victories here and there, but then we see Jesus giving himself while we're still enemies. And, and that holiness, that experience of his holiness, that awe is like, oh my goodness, or, or try patience, right? People are hard uh, to deal with. I don't know if you ever come across this. Uh, and I, I try so hard to be patient, and I have moments where I am patient, but those are few and far between, I have to admit, because it's, it's hard to be patient, but you don't actually experience how great and awesome God's patient is, his, his perfect patience, until we actually try to walk in that patience. And as we do this, as we try to walk in holiness, we have this experiential knowledge of God's holiness, where he becomes higher and higher in our sights, because he's awesome. And we, we, we don't just know, we feel it, we see it, right? He's holy far above what we could ever imagine. But there's, there's something else that happens with this. As we see God being elevated in our sights and he, he's you know, being lifted up as holy, the, the reverse is also happening, that we start to recognize our sin. John goes on to say, uh, he says, uh, oh, sorry, you can skip ahead. A couple of slides. Yeah, uh, here. First John 1 John 1.8, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? This is the next thing that he points to, that as we see God's holiness, all of a sudden we become aware of our sin. He says, if we claim we have not sinned, 
We make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. He presses us in, and he says, as you see God become increasingly holy, and you try to walk in holiness, you, you start to become aware of your own sinfulness. And to deny it would be, cause you to be a liar, trying to deceive yourself. You're deluded, John's saying, if you think that you're not steeped in sin. And so while we see the holiness of God being lifted up, at the same time, we start to get a picture of ourselves. As the holiness of God is going up, we see ourselves lowering in our view. We're becoming humbled by the reality of our sin. And that, that humility and that awareness of our, not just sinfulness, but wretchedness. Wretchedness becomes increasingly uh, palpable to us. And we see even when we do good things that they're laced and they're, they're, they're laced with selfishness, they're polluted with other mixed motives, and that sin, it, it goes with us everywhere we go. We can't ex- escape that darkness within us. And all along, God, his holiness is increasing, and our awareness of our wretchedness is also increasing, and God is going up, and we are going down. Do you feel the joy yet? This does not feel like a very exciting uh, message, John. How is this supposed to bring us joy? Well, there's a third aspect, of course, and it's the blood-bought forgiveness. It's the blood-bought forgiveness that he, he ends with here. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It says, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. He goes on in verse 9 to repeat the same sentiment. He says, if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge it, if we become aware that we're, we're the wretched one down here, he says he's faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That as we start to see this, this gap between us, that Jesus comes and he stands in the gap of the forgiveness. Right? Now, this isn't a new message, of course. This is, this is like the foundation of the gospel, right? We all know this message so well. In fact, if you're a Christian, this is what it means to be a Christian, is to accept this message. So there was a time in your life where you, you, you saw yourself and you started to realize, no, I am sinful, and God is holy, and there is this gap between us. And in that gap, you started to recognize, I need, I need a mediator, and you cling to Jesus, and the cross comes. And it, it bridges this gap between you and God, your wretchedness and, and God's holiness. And this is the, the moment of salvation. And, and so often we stay right here, but, but if we can keep pressing into this, keep pressing into this reality, and we come back week after week and, and we start to put into practice holiness and we start to try and do it, we start to see God's holiness increase and we see our wretchedness in a more clear light. And as that happens, the cross becomes bigger and bigger in our view. Because we start to realize that we need a bigger mediator. And we come back and we do this week after week, year after year, pressing in, not just trying to uh, be satisfied with what we know of God and we know of ourselves. And the reality is, is God is infinitely holy, beyond our comprehension, which means we could explore God's holiness for the rest of our lives Right? And at the end of our lives, still have room to grow in our awareness of his holiness. 
And the reality is also that we are far more wretched than we could comprehend. And so we could explore our sinfulness and our wretchedness every day for the rest of our lives and at the end of our lives still have room to grow. So if we press into the press into this, we start to see this gaping chasm between us and God. And all of a sudden, the cross is giant in our view. And we aren't satisfied with a a dinky little cross anymore. No, this, this is our obsession Because we start to realize the grace of Jesus Christ that has rescued us, that has bridged that gap. And this is where the joy starts to come in. Because I'll admit, like, I I get it, at least in theory. I get why people love to be greeted at the door by a dog who is just overjoyed. uh, Now, of course, that doesn't do anything for me, but I get it because I have a toddler. uh, And she is at that stage where she thinks I'm cool. Uh, like, beyond cool. So at the end of the day, I walk in, and Kara, if she hears me, she just shouts, Daddy, and comes from wherever she is in the house, and she comes, and she gives me a hug, and she looks at Mommy, she's like, Daddy's here, and she's so excited, and I love it. <laughs> there is nothing better. Like, it's, like, that feels to me, at first glance, it feels like the superlative experience of joy. All right? Because that idea that somebody delights in me, that somebody takes that much joy in me, brings me joy. It increases my joy. What's even better is the days when I come home and Lindsay's that excited to see me. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, which is even better. It doesn't happen as often uh, because we're real people in a real marriage, all of that. But, I mean, that's even better, right? It's so good. I want you to think. Think for just a moment. Who is, who's the person in this world, living or dead, who you just think is awesome? Like, you look up to the most. It doesn't have to be the person, but somebody that you admire just Beyond most people, you think they're so cool, all right? I want, to, I want you to imagine that that person invited you over for dinner. And uh, so you're like overjoyed already because you got the invitation. And then you pull up in the driveway and you see them like poking their head out the curtains like, and they're smiling. And then, then you walk in the door and as you walk in they're like, yes, Warren's here. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh man, I was looking forward to this all day. And they're shouting with like this exclamation that they're just so excited to have you here. They're like rejoicing that you're in their presence. And you guys have a great dinner and you have a a good time. And then as you're leaving, he or she is like, you know what, let's do this again next week. And you come over next week and you open the door and you're like, yes, you're back. I'm so excited. Oh man, you made my day, right? To have somebody that you respect and admire take that much joy in you coming into their home. I mean, the joy that that brings, it's, it's unparalleled. Well, Jesus tells us this story. It's a parable. It's a made-up story to prove a point uh, about this son. And this son was kind of a crappy son, and he dishonored his father, and he took the money, you know, his dad's money, and he just bolted, went off, do his own thing. Uh, but he ended up squandering all of that wealth, and he had nothing. And so he decided, you know what? Embarrassed, shameful, I'm going to go crawling back to my dad, and I'm going I'm to just beg him to be a servant in his house. And as the son starts walking up to the house, the, the father sees him from a long, long way off. And, and instead of like the father waiting for the son to come and beg to be a servant, the father just picks up his robe and he sprints out to his son. He wraps him in his arms and he gives him a kiss and he's overjoyed at his son coming home. And he's just like over the moon because his son came into his home. And it's, it's a really, it's a wonderful story. But that's just a story. It's actually, it's not even a real story. It's a made-up story. The real thing is even better. 
The real thing is even better, because in the real story, you see Jesus kneeling in a garden in terror, because he's looking ahead to a cross, and not, not some puny little cross, a cross so big that it, it can carry the sins of the world. He's looking at this cross, and he's horrified at it, because he knows it's not just the physical pain of the cross, but it is the fullness of the wrath of God being poured out on him. And I, I can't imagine what that, what that even means, what that looks like. I, I just can't wrap my mind around the fullness of the wrath of God. But here's what I know. The Son of God was in a garden. This is God himself, and he's terrified. Whatever the wrath of God means, it was enough to terrify Jesus to the point where he said it was enough that he could have just died in that moment. It was so overwhelming. And he pleaded with his father to, to take that cup away. Let there be another way, but there wasn't another way. And so Jesus got up and he went to the cross. And he went willingly. He wasn't made to go. He chose to go to that cross and let the fullness of the wrath of God be poured out upon him. You have to ask, why in the world would he do that? For what reason would somebody bear such a burden? And the writer of Hebrews, he tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy, for the same reason anybody does anything, Jesus went to the cross for the joy. Because he looked out and he saw you and he was overjoyed at the thought of you coming into his home that he was willing to carry that cross. That's the kind of joy that he takes in you, stepping into his home. And, and it's true, seeing a, a lowly dog wagging its tail in joy at you coming home, like, that brings a little bit of joy. But seeing a holy God carry a heavy cross in joy because you're coming home, that's on a completely different level. This is the message that John is convinced if we know this and we see this and we let this cross become bigger and bigger and bigger in our sights, it will lead to the superlative experience of joy, especially when you experience it and your neighbors experience it. We come together in this room and we express that and we feed into each other's joy and we press into that. And so here at Beacon, we're going to do what we can to create an environment that is, is social and spiritual and emotional right here in this room. And we're going to come back to this message over and over and over again. We're going to sing about it in our songs. We're going to talk about it from the pulpit. We're going to come back and reflect on it when we celebrate the table of communion. We're going to hear stories about this when we do baptisms here in the service. We're going to keep pressing into this message to do what we can. But there's also something you need to do. We can't do this without you also doing your part. And for you, you need, you need to actually start just by being here. It's actually where you start, by coming out. Coming out, not, not just once, but coming out week after week after week. And those who are home, I get it, we're in a pandemic, and like, I, I, I get it. But once you're able to come back, I encourage you, come back. Don't let the comfort and convenience of doing this from your couch overshadow the superlative experience of joy that awaits you if you come, if you're here in the room and we're doing this together. Come, come on out, come often, come early, right? Come early enough that when you're running late, you're still early enough to come in and get in the right headspace to worship that you're not rushed in, that you don't miss the songs, right? Sing the songs, right? That's the second thing. Come, and then secondly, lean into it. Lean in. 
right? Sing the song. Sing with joy. I know it can be like kind of weird, especially if you're men, to kind of sing out. But just do it. We have loud enough music that nobody's listening to you sing. But just let, let your guard down. Let this be an emotionally charged experience for you. And when we celebrate communion together, lean into that. When we have that time of confession, lean into that. Let that be real. Let that be an opportunity for you to get a new view of how wretched you are. Be real. Confess that sin. Don't try to whitewash it. Just own it. Press in. Press in. And when we come and we we share the word of God in a message like this, be listening for this message, right? Be listening for this message, this message of God's holiness and our wretchedness and the cross that bridges that gap. Let this cross become greater and greater in your sights. And as you do it, and the person next to you does it, and I do it, our joy is multiplied. And then the Holy Spirit comes in, and he works with power to actually bring these things deep into our our hearts. And our joy is increased. Before you know it, we are experiencing the best joy, the superlative joy. And a funny thing happens. When you come and you spend time with somebody week after week after week, and in that person's presence, you have just complete joy. You find superlative experience of joy in their presence week after week after week. You know what happens? You fall in love with them. You fall in love with them. Not like, you know, you love your uncle because he's your uncle and you're supposed to love him. No, you fall in love with them like a bride falls in love with her bridegroom. And as we come together and we make this our goal, right, to have this kind of environment with this message for the superlative experience of joy, before you know it, we as a church, as the bride of Christ, are falling in love with Jesus. We genuinely love him. That's the goal of our worship. And we've already, if we just do that, we've already started to do the very thing that Jesus commanded us to do, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength.